This is Eli Lake, and welcome back to The Reeducation. My guest today is Ari Lam, the chief executive of B'nai Zion and the host of the Good Faith Effort podcast. Our topic is why so many Americans are so miserable when life, for the most part, seems to be getting much easier, particularly if you take the long view. I was on an airplane and there was internet, high speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And I'm sitting on the plane and they go, open up your laptop, you can go on the internet. And it's fast and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down and they apologize, the internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, this is bull <laughs> Like how quickly the world owes him something yes. he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right. We just heard one of my favorite bits from Louis C.K. And even though it's a comedy routine, he's making a serious point. Imagine going back in time, say 100 years, to a typical family farm. There would be no air conditioning. There would be no refrigeration. Every year at the harvest, the family would have to toil for days to get their crop into cans or to the market or their produce would spoil. No indoor plumbing, just a putrid outhouse. If the family was lucky, there may be a radio. The family would be at risk of catching any number of diseases, from polio to tuberculosis. If a son or the father had served in World War I and was lucky enough to return, there would be a very good chance that he would be missing a limb or an eye. The children would be lucky to finish high school. The mother would have no recourse if she was abused in her marriage, except to leave with no chance for support for her husband and no right to see her children. And if the family was black, they would be second-class citizens, at best, and at risk of state-sponsored terror from the Ku Klux Klan. Now imagine explaining to that family how it was so unfair that your kids had to go to class for a year on their computers during the latest pandemic. It took nearly an entire year for virologists and medical researchers to develop a vaccine for a disease the world had just discovered. And then we learned that the vaccine only prevented death and severe illness. You could still catch flu-like symptoms. Instead of visiting friends and family far away, we could only connect to them with video calls. And the government kept telling us to get boosters for our vaccines. The farmers from 1922 would ask if we could take them with us back to the future, as it were. Now, this is a version of an argument popularized in the last few years by Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker. In his 2018 book, he makes the case that the revolution in thinking that occurred during the Enlightenment in politics, science, and how we know what is true, epistemology, has made the world a far more prosperous and free place than at any other point in human history. Here is Pinker explaining his thesis on Bill Maher's program four years ago. Well, we'll be, we can begin with life itself. Through most of human history, right. life expectancy at birth was around 30. Uh, now it's 71 worldwide and 80 in the more developed parts of the world. Um, education, uh, through most of human history, the vast majority of people were illiterate. Now, 90% of people under 25 in the world can read, read and write. Now, Pinker uses a bit of a cheat code. 
a modern crisis usually doesn't seem so bad if you take a long historical view. Consider Vladimir Putin. I think any rational observer would understand that the Russian leader is a terrible autocrat. He jails political opponents, even has some of them murdered abroad. He just invaded Ukraine on no real good reason and flimsiest and most dishonest of pretexts. And he has snuffed out most of what remains of Russia's independent media. And that's just really scratching the surface. And yet, Vladimir Putin is probably one of the most humane leaders in Russian history if you compare him to, say, Vlad the Impaler or most of the Romanov czars. Putin stands out today because we have far higher standards for world leaders than we did even a hundred years ago. What's more, just because there are many ways that things are better today for some people, it doesn't mean that there are not real problems. American adolescence is in crisis. Within the past decade, the teen suicide rate has surged by nearly 40%, and close to one in five high school students reported they'd seriously considered killing themselves. Everybody's miserable, and everybody's more miserable when they think that everybody's having a great time. But everybody's miserable because they're looking at everybody be miserable looking like they're having fun. We just heard from a clip of a New York Times video that explains the frightening rise of teen suicides in America in the last two decades. And it's only gotten worse since the lockdowns and isolation of the pandemic. Suicides are a subset of what are now called deaths of despair. More and more Americans today are getting addicted to lethal drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamines. We are living through a real mental health crisis as the spate of recent mass shootings attest. And it's not just the worst case scenarios of premature death. More and more Americans are obese, eating processed, sugar-rich foods that will lop off years from their lives. A Pew survey from February found that 70% of Americans believe that young adults today will have a more difficult time paying for college, saving for the future, or buying a home than their parents did. Fewer Americans are getting married. Now, in a vacuum, these trends undermine a core assumption of American life in the last 100 years, that everything will just keep getting better. We may have actually peaked. That's the thing. And now we're in decline. Here's the economic historian Robert J. Gordon from 2016 explaining a thesis of his groundbreaking book from that year. So when we compare... Uh, technological change over the last 30 or 40 years. Yes, we've had the digital revolution, um, and we've had a complete change in the way offices work from typewriters through uh, flat screens and word processing programs, um, but they've affected a narrower span of life. If we walked into today's kitchen, uh, it's very familiar to those who were there in 1950. Uh, there's not been much of a change at all except for the invention of the microwave oven. Uh, so it's the, the dimension, the breadth of the change that was so much greater back before 1970. Gordon proposes that the real economic miracle for America has already happened. Between 1870 and 1970, we built the electric grid. The modern bathroom was invented with the advent of indoor plumbing. Americans invented and mass-produced automobiles and planes. This says nothing of the telephone. Since then, the invention of personal computers, the internet, Word processing and, of course, smartphones have further revolutionized our society, but those changes have not had the same massive impact on everyday life as the miraculous innovations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
And the progress was not limited to just economics. American culture exploded in the 20th century. While the 19th century produced wonderful novelists and poets, the 20th century gave us jazz, musicals, cinema, not to mention the NFL and the NBA. In 1870, only a handful of elites went to college. By 1970, universities were an engine of upward social mobility for the entire country. Finally, consider the expansion of rights in the same 100-year period. In 1870, women could not vote, and the right of black American men to vote was temporary. After the North abandoned Reconstruction, Southern states imposed poll taxes and other tests designed to steal the voting rights of former slaves. New factory workers teeming into the cities did not have a right to organize unions. By 1970, federal legislation had remedied most of these problems. Now, this progress did not unfold in a straight line. There were, you know, dips and jumps and so forth. But the fact that there was progress is itself undeniable if you look at that 100-year period. This is why so many Americans have traditionally held a faith that things would get better despite the setbacks of the present moment. It is the view that history, and particularly American history, has a direction and a positive one at that. The Union may not be perfect, but we endeavor over generations to perfect the Union. A 19th century abolitionist minister named Theodore Parker put it like this, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by the experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends towards justice. Martin Luther King Jr. would echo that sentiment in a famous 1967 speech. Let us realize that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, it's a comforting thought, but it really depends on how long the arc of history actually is. Because if it's thousands or millions of years, then the moral universe really looks more like a circle. This idea is captured in the philosophy of the 18th century Neapolitan Giambattista Vico. Vico argued that the history of human society was guided by a divine providence found in the minds of people, but inspired by God. So he believed that there were phases of history and a kind of overall direction to it. But at the same time, he allowed that human society, like the life cycle of humans themselves, went through various stages of growth and then decay. Is America now in decay? Sometimes it seems that way. In our burst of creative freedom, we have invented new ways to make ourselves more miserable. We have invented ever-powerful drugs that addict and enslave us. We have invented smartphones that show us streams of photos and videos of people living better lives than we do, making us all the more jealous. We have invented simulated meta-worlds that keep us apart from the physical world and the real people within it. How do we find happiness when so much of our technology today is designed to stoke our fears and enmities? My guest today, Ari Lamb, a rabbi and a PhD from Princeton in ancient Judaism and Christianity, may have an answer. He argues that happiness requires a sense, first and foremost, that we are part of something bigger, much bigger than our present. We are links in a chain. And in that understanding, we focus on both the possibilities of the future and the miseries of the past. It gives us perspective, but more important, it gives us meaning. I have to say I hope he's right, because sometimes I can't help but think the arc of the moral universe is so long that we will have to endure another dark age until we stumble upon the next enlightenment. 
Well, right now, the re-education is delighted to have an old friend and a former intern of mine when I was at the New York Sun, who has gone on to surpass me in so many ways, who has earned a PhD from Princeton University, is an ordained Orthodox rabbi, is the president of Soul Shop Studios, chief executive of the B'nai Zion Foundation, and the host of the Good Faith Effort podcast, which I've been a guest on, but I've also listened to, and I highly recommend to our listeners, if you're interested in really thoughtful conversation about kind of American life and spirituality and meaning in American life, that's the place to go. Rabbi Ari Lam, thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. As a fan of the podcast, but more importantly, as just like one of the OG Eli Lake fans, this is an incredible, incredible privilege. Well, you are making me blush. And, you know, the reason that we have you on today is that I wanted to do a little bit of a different kind of topic for this show, which is to look at why it is that it seems that so many Americans are and and people in in the kind of developed world in general are suffering from despair, have are, are somewhat miserable, even though if you take a long view, even in the last 100, 150 so years, Life has gotten so much easier, and in some ways, society has gotten much freer and more fair. And so all of this progress has not made us happier. And I know that that is a subject that you have done a lot of thinking on and a lot of writing on. So I wanted to just pose the question to you, Rabbi Lamb. Why are we so miserable when we have, you know, achieved so many amazing things in recent history that makes our lives easier and, and, and at least it should be happier. I think the best way to approach the question is to ask yourself who actually is still happy. And when I think about that, there are two principal groups that come to mind. There could be more, but the two that really most readily come to mind are like Silicon Valley founders, right? So like the startup yeah. community, they're like having a great time in Miami or in, you know, wherever they are. Off in Texas. Exactly. Right. So you just hit up these places and they're like, they're super excited about life. They're always excited on Twitter and whatever it is. And that's one group. Other group, religious people. Religious people. I mean, I myself am kind of Orthodox Jewish rabbi. I'm one of the fundamentalists, you know, you read about. And you're not a fundamentalist. I hear you. I I, I hear that. You know what I mean? Like, this is an important point that you're making about the, the sort of you know, entrepreneur class, which in America, you can you can make a gazillion dollars and live an amazing life and people of faith. Those are the two groups that you think in America today are are actually happy. Exactly. Now, what do they have in common? In one sentence, they're both focused on long term horizons, right? On, on growth mm-hmm. over the long term. So you have and and if I could actually even kind of add some color to that, both groups have this this almost insane belief in their own potential for building the future. And so insane, in fact, that people regularly describe them as kind of delusional. And so you could think about the way people like, you know, the way people talk about like Elon Musk pre all the Twitter stuff, right? Like Elon Musk, when he was just doing Tesla, right? Like a delusional lunatic, Think about how people talk about people of faith, like delusional lunatics. And I think the reason is because you have two groups of people that are that are deeply mission driven and that allows them to be focused on the on the long term. Like they really believe that they're building a better world for the future and they're they are confident. They have the sense of hope 
that the future is going to be better. And the question is, what role are they going to be able to play in that future? So where you where I think the rest of America has gone wrong, therefore, by looking at those two examples is, look, over the course of some time between like the 60s through the 90s, we became the victim of our own success and our own abundance and opulence. And we kind of convinced ourselves that, you know, like Rousseau is right. People are good. We don't really, you know, society and other people are just making us miserable. We have enough money to get by on our own and enough, you know, food and security, whatever, to get by on our own. So, you know, army of one, be yourself. And we sort of didn't reckon with the fact that we'd have to be ourselves by ourselves. And that has kind of made us fundamentally miserable. Like human beings. What do you mean by that? Be ourselves by ourselves. What does that mean? Well, we kind of reacted to this world, this America that we saw in like, you know, the early 20th century through like the 1950s, which in many ways was like very brittle, like ideologically brittle. It was sort of like superficially religious and faithful and confident, but beneath the, so you don't have to like scratch that hard beneath the surface to find a lot of the cracks. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of sexism and all of that stuff. But one thing that we at least kind of, said that we believed was we believed that America was was responsible in some way for doing great things in the world. We had a sense of obligation. We felt that America actually had a purpose, a great purpose that we should that we should help prosecute. And we well, believed, I mean, it doesn't isn't that you know, which Americans? I mean, there were probably a lot of black Americans who thought that. Well, that's what I'm saying is bullshit. You know, like, what do well, we want to? Yeah. Well, that's well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying so like you don't have to scratch beneath the surface of that to right. see how brittle and bad and bad it, it was in reality. But I think by throwing out a lot of that or by like exposing a lot of the hypocrisies of that early stage of the American experiment, we also kind of disposed with everything that they said they believed in. So we said, well, listen, a lot all the racism and the sexism, and the misogyny and all that kind of stuff came along with religion, tight-knit communities, people who believed in in some form of like American civil religion and, and American prophecy almost, right? And and we said, well, those things must be bad also because they came along with the racism and the sexism. When in, and so what we did over the course of the 60s through the 90s and kind of rebelling against that worldview was we said, well, okay, what we what would really be good for us is actually getting away from communities, getting away from a sense of obligation, Obligation is just another way for people to, you know, for one group of people to oppress another group of people. And so you start to see like all the pop culture that we consume in the 90s is is kind of geared towards it. Like I remember watching the World Series and seeing commercials for the army, or, like for the U.S. military mm -hmm. in like 1998 that are like an army of one. <laughs> like it's such like an absurd, it's such an absurd attempt to meld this highly collectivist and communitarian element of American life, maybe the communitarian element par excellence with this sense of like this regnant culturally dominating sense of like individualism, be yourself. Like they obviously were mutually exclusive, but we had this ethos of like, we kind of don't want others to bother us and we just want to be left alone and we'll be happy now. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to talk about this in broad brushstrokes. There's always been oddballs in American life that have believed that they had the freedom to sort of march from their own drummer. And we've had pockets of great tolerance and corruption, and we've had pockets of, of incredible conformity. But I see your point that as a sort of general rule, the, the sort of, you know, the, when you call it the center of the culture has shifted. 
in this period. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't think there was any sense of like mission drivenness is a good thing because in order to have a mission, you kind of need to be part of something larger, right? Like, but we saw. I mean, for example, we saw the reaction already, like in the seventies. So there was, you know, I mean, there was one part of the culture which was exploring free love and you know, extreme, like almost a hedonism that was celebrated in the 1970s, but that also saw the rise of the born again evangelical movement in this country of a whole group of people who were rediscovering faith that ultimately became what is known sometimes as the religious right, also, by the way, happened in Judaism and other religions as well. So it, is it fair to say that it's not everybody, it's sort of, you know, that people reacted to various changes in different ways, right? Well, I think like the 60s and early 70s was the last time that you saw like mass like youth involvement in a in in purpose drivenness and mission drivenness until the advent of like wokeness which i kind of see as a, a similar parallel right like it was the last moment where young people felt like you have to stand for something to be to be serious like you have to be part of something larger than yourself you have to be part of a movement that kind of gives you a moral direction in life and then once we you know once that group kind of got older, got jobs, had kids, what they kind of taught their kids was, honestly, you just need to be successful, get a good job, go to a good school, and and you'll be fine, right? If you if you you know if you become successful, you'll be good. And mm -hmm. so what you end up getting, like one way to look at this actually is to kind of look at the life cycle of how Martin Luther King Jr. is received in the American public, right? So right. there's, there's, I mean, I remember growing up, the way that people talked about Martin Luther King Jr. was, and again, there were right versions of this and left versions of this, but the commonality was sort of that Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision for society was a, was that it should be colorblind so that anybody uh, no matter their race creed background ethnicity what have you can get a job at a hedge fund right anyone should be able to get whatever job that they freedom want. freedom of opportunity have, freedom of opportunity correct when, and in that respect like dr king it makes a lot of sense the thing is martin luther king jr was a reverend it was reverend king right he was preaching an explicitly theological understanding of American history, the moral arc of the universe has long been a bent towards justice, right? The part of his thought that most embarrasses his defenders to this day because it's so theological, right? It's rooted in his reading of the book of Exodus, right? Yeah, like, yeah but I mean, Hegelians and Marxists also believe there is a direction to history. Well, true, and these are people who are, like, again, the, the early Hegelians, like, they're steeped in religious literature, they're, they're reading well, that's books, true. They're, they're reacting to it, right? It's in but like, I think Marx and Hegel, I mean, I, we should, for our listeners, I don't want to get into too esoteric topics here, but these were 19th century German philosophers. Everyone knows Karl Marx, but <laughs> he, Marx was a Hegelian and Hegel had a theory of history, that there was ultimately kind of phases to history and there were, and that there, it did kind of move in a, in a, in a progressive line to a certain extent, which is for the purposes of this conversation, what we need to know. I don't want to get into some more. It's not a philosophy podcast, <laughs> although that might be a good Patreon spinoff. But uh, <laughs> but I'm, 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 I'm mentioning it because there are there you can find similar 
thinking about the direction of history and the idea that kind of we're going to keep going towards progress, things are going to keep getting better. That's a very American idea, independent of religious provenance. It's a very, and, and there can be, you know, Marxists can believe that as well, that ultimately history is moving in a certain direction and we want to try to push it along. And some of the most evil people in the world, like Joseph Stalin, believe they were agents of history, moving it towards a certain, you know what I'm saying? Whereas, oh, totally. Meaning, yeah, like, whereas like, like you could argue a conservative insight is that, hey, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. There are cycles of history. You know, we're always going to have corruption. We're always going to have greed. We're probably always going to have war. Just get used to it. Right. So that that's so that's why I'd kind of say that if you look at the communities of like the faith communities that are happiest, right. they actually don't kind of have that that conservative sense of like everything's bad, everything's always going to be bad. And so well, not like, necessarily bad. It's just that I think conservatives do not expect things to just automatically get better. And, you know, you can that can be a source of solace, right? Uh, Rabbi, it can be a sense of like, <laughs> you know, hey, count your blessings. It can. Yeah. It can. It can always be worse. Count your blessings. It can. Yeah. It can. I guess what I'm, the 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 argument that I would make would be that there is this counterintuitive, like wild eyed optimism within traditional religion in America that we typically associate with progressives and with like kind of like in some cases, like examples of progressive foolishness, right? Like a misunderstanding of the world. My my counterclaim would be that it actually is deeply traditional and deeply it's a deeply religious impulse to look at the world, see the world as it is and say the world as it is, is not the world as it ought to be. And right. they're sure. And, and we have an obligation to transform it. Now, you may think that we have no chance. You may think we're outnumbered. No, it, this is this is the idea in Judaism. Yeah. Uno Lam, which is a. Progressives have stolen this concept, but it's a right. it's a deep yeah, concept. It's, it's like Kabbalistic and medieval in origin, right? Yes. So, so you have so my so what you have then is kind of these two groups of people that you don't not only do you not usually associate together, kind of like the American dynamism startup yeah. types, entrepreneurial class, and like deeply traditional religious people who are getting married young and having a ton of kids and you know spending their time reading like the Bible or the Talmud or whatever all day long. You typically think of those groups as like mutually exclusive or as not tolerating each other. But in fact, they're united in pursuing this wild eyed long term vision for the future. Mm. The entrepreneurial class is building the software. Right. And the the religious people are building the hardware, like actual people who are going to use the software. Right. So I think that if you want to understand why people are to kind of bring it around to your question, why are people so unhappy, even though we've made a lot of progress? I think it's because people aren't used to the thinking in long time horizons. They can't think in long time horizons from the past to the present. And I think the reason they can't do that is because they themselves are not used to thinking in long time horizons from the present to the future. Mm. All right, let me, let, 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 let's steal man all of this for a second. What do My you favorite say? Part of this podcast, by the way. What? My what? favorite part of every one of the episodes of the podcast. <laughs> well, let's steal, man. I mean, so uh, first of all, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianov's book on the yep. coddling of the American mind. They point to 2013, 2014 as like where things really changed on college campuses and they blame it on, I guess I'm Gen X. So the Gen X parents, although I'm a very new parent, that to sort of took away like just kid time 
being able to play on their own and everything became a, a kind of obsession with safety and like the nannyism and like everything like you had to basically bubble wrap childhood and so the children did not learn how to socialize with other kids without an adult authority figure so they they've become like instant snitches and then you add to that the corrosive effects of social media where you are creating particularly in young and adolescent girls a kind of fear of missing out and this incredible FOMO that their lives are are boring and terrible and that there are these other people who are their age who are having an enormous amount of fun and they can see the photos on Instagram, but they're not allowed at the into the party. And that just wreaks havoc on one psychology. So that A, you really don't have the resources and the experience of like what to do when you're facing adversity with other kids and handling it yourself. And B, you know, you're addicted to your phone and seeing and comparing your life to, you know, some sort of fantasy that probably no one really, even the Instagram influencers can't attain. That is one explanation for why we have the rise in teen suicide rates, why people claim they're so miserable, why they don't believe in the future. When you look at these surveys, it's incredible. Something like a recent Pew survey said 70% of Americans didn't think the current young adults would ever have enough to buy a home or pay off their college debts. I mean, these are these are serious matters. There's a lot of sort of despair when you look at it and like drug it. So what do you think of that? Does that does that cohere with your idea that lots of people just are losing the ability to think in terms of long term horizons and they're not orienting their life to the future? As much as I love the coddling of the American mind, my if I could level a critique at it, it would be that it's listing every and cataloging exhaustively every single one of the secondary factors yeah. at play in what's gone wrong, uh, or at least what's gone wrong for you know a segment of the population and a and a large part of the culture, and it's just missing the dominant fact, the primary factor that organizes all the secondary factors, and that is just again lack of mission drivenness. Like we've we've stripped. We've stripped people mm. like in my, you know, you could say we've stripped people, we've stripped American, you know, young people of their faith. But even if you're not like, even if you're just, you're not in the market for faith, right? Right. We've stripped people of their sense that belonging to a community that has a mission and a purpose is important and good for you, for your well-being. And when you look around, like it's, you don't need to go to helicopter parenting and social media and FOMO, like all those things help explain what's going on, but you don't need to go to those things to look at someone who's deeply involved in wokeness and going to rallies and all this stuff to just say, this is a person whose culture told them all the things that sustained your grandparents and your great grandparents and your great, 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 great grandparents going all the way back. All the things that gave their life meaning and purpose are stupid and false and fairy tales. And now just go be in the world and like, be happy, get a, you know, earn enough to buy a house and afford a car. But do you think that the woke, do you think, I mean, wokeness and I didn't even know, if, are we still saying wokeness? I don't know what it is, <laughs> but do you think that, that I, I, I look at that ideology and I just, that it seems like you could sum it up by saying everything is terrible and racist and everyone stinks. And I hate, you know, we hate it. You know, I mean, I think so. they, they're constantly saying like, I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. Everyone's so exhausted. And then they want you to do the work. Well, there's a reason that all of those things sound like the 
<laughs> I just, I do the like work. All, all of those things sound like the first half of a good like religious ethics lecture. <laughs> and there you don't have the second half of like, therefore, what do you do? Right. Here's how you find redemption. Here's how you achieve help bring salvation to the world. And like, here's how you like save yourself. Right. It's like the first half. But there's a reason why you see so much like religious iconography and all of this. You have people toppling idols of. of yeah, yeah, they yeah. Abort. You have people, you know essentially arguing that that perpetrators should wash the feet of their putative victims in public. That actually did happen in 2020. I saw I was that. saying, yeah, yeah. people bowing down in prayer. There's a reason that this draws so much from the iconography and the imagery of religion because it's just deeply motivated by the same impulse. So I don't feel like we need to reach that far for an explanation. It's I think in some ways it's as simple as we told people all the things that organized and that organized human life and gave it meaning and purpose for like two to 3000 years is nonsense and bad. And then we kind of set people adrift without a purpose and people want a purpose. Now, sometimes purpose drives you to do truly terrible things. I mean, Stalinist Russia, Nazi Germany, like grand per like the thing about grand purpose is that it's not good. It's just powerful. So it can drive you to do truly terrible things, but if you can also drive you to do great things, that's the thing. If you want to accomplish right. something genuinely great, like you need grand purpose. You should harness it. Right. Yeah. Like Michel- Michelangelo could not have painted the Sistine Chapel, right? Unless he right. it would have been motivated like... by something <laughs> larger than himself. It would have been some bad clip art. For, right. <laughs> right. Or something like that. It's funny on the do the work thing. I always thought to myself that do the work is just a fancy way of saying, read these books that I like. So I kind of want to say, do the work. Read John Stuart Mill. You got to do the work. You got to read your F.A. Hayek. Do the work, everybody. Anyway. Well, I I think so. I actually I think that's a place where we can make like a really positive intervention in the argument, because if yeah. everyone's if do the work is just proceduralism, like read books that are on my curriculum, but haven't yet been. on. Yeah, well, that seems to be like what it means when they say do the or or it's that plus, you know, participate in a struggle session and confess to your you know implicit biases and racism and all this other stuff like that's the that's it's two things it's like self-interrogate make yourself feel terrible confess your sins and you know read these books so (laughs) right right now and you're not wrong like religion pretty much right it sounds right to me (laughs) but there i think there actually is a way through the argument like i i actually believe that there is a way to say no there actually are specific books that yeah. you should read and it depends on where you come from who you are and how you're situated this ultimately is the lesson of the hebrew bible it's why it's what differentiates jerusalem from athens right athens is all about philosophy universals every single any true pro- proposition needs to be true at all time and places for every single person it needs to be universally applicable the bible is the opposite of that the bible says no no no, no. there are like laws that should that are totally historically contingent because you left egypt like uh, you know a long time ago right you have to behave a certain way for all time and not everybody just you have to behave a certain way for all time so the bible kind of glories in in particularity and so i think that that's actually critically important for american flourishing like actually i think americans should have some equivalent of what the French have or what India has, right? So part of being French means you take Voltaire seriously. It means means you take Baudelaire seriously. Part of being being from India is you take the Ramayana seriously and and you take the Mabharata seriously. I think part of being American means taking 
met like sort of the foundational texts of American literature and experience seriously. Now that canon, I can name things in the canon. I actually think one of the positive lessons of the latest iteration of like racial politics is that actually the canon should be a lot larger than mm. we thought it was in the past. But one place to start that actually I think should make both sides happy is the Hebrew Bible, right? The Bible is in many ways the kind of moral constitution of the United States. And just take one small but infinitely important example. Wait, wait, slow down. What do you mean by the moral constitution of the United States? So I think that if you look at the the source for all of America's best moral impulses, mm -hmm. it has until quite recently, but even still recently, like you can think of Barack Obama talking about the Joshua generation. That's a, like a deep, you know, that's like a not even that deep a cut from the Hebrew Bible. Right. The source of America's best moral and most important moral impulses has always been the Hebrew Bible. Just think one example, racism. Progress in the fight against racism in the history of America has, with no exceptions, always been built on the moral authority and prophetic authority of the Hebrew Bible. So uh, David Blight from Yale just wrote a wonderful book about... Uh, about no, no, that, that is certainly true. From the Quakers right. to, to the abolitionists. And there, uh, there's a, abolitionism <laughs> was, in fact, a kind of a Christian movement. And then you look at Martin Luther King, and of course, he was a minister. And I guess you could say the outliers here would be people who were who were more who were slightly different than the civil rights movement, like Malcolm X or. Yeah. And, like, and right. look, like if you want to if you want to understand, if you want to understand the history, like if even as an outsider, someone like myself, like if I want to understand the history of of black culture in America, think of like you know, heroes of the American experiment like Frederick Douglass, go on, you know, go on down the line, Denmark Vesey, Nat Turner, like you're thinking of people who are like real icons in that experience, let alone people who were helpful to the black community, like the, you know, white abolition. Right. Oh, sure. The, here are the foundational texts you should be reading. You should be reading Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah. You should be reading the book of Amos. You should be reading the book of Ezekiel and the book of Exodus. Those are like, before you've read those things, there, everything else is essentially commentary, right? So, so I think that one thing we can and should say is that, look, America, the United States of America, by virtue both of its, of its triumphs and its virtues, like our commitment, our foundational commitment to liberty, the fact that we're not an ethno state, that we actually, that we actually are founded not on a try, but on an idea those things impel us to to read and appreciate certain things over other things but also our flaws and our and our our historic sins also should should yeah oh i see i see that. i see what you mean i'm saying like we like america like part of i almost want to turn around like the the rate the history of racism critique of america and make it a virtue right like part of part of right the what, way to measure our progress is to is to acknowledge the initial the, the original sin and then to see how much, how far we've, 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 we've compensated for that. Or, well, there, you know, it, we had a civil war and. Well, I mean, you could think about it this way. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the UK, was a really profound thinker, had this notion that America kind of thinks it's a society rooted in a social contract. In reality, it's a society, it's a society rooted in a covenant. To make that, to put that in kind of simple terms, what a covenant does is it tells you, here are the stipulations that we all agree to. And as we move forward, if anyone breaks those stipulations, the whole thing is ruined, right? So if- Well, yeah, okay. But when you say a covenant, it's an interesting kind of covenant that is actually not like, I mean, so one of the problems that, you know, 
we've had in religion throughout human history is that when groups of people believe that they are, they possess the sort of singular truth, they don't like it when other people are like, no, you don't. And America is founded on this idea that we are a law, we're such a huge country that you can come here and you have the right to claim possession of any deep truth and we can't do anything about it. You could, you have to coexist. I mean, it's, that actually predates, you know, the constitution. That is, you know, you look at the founding of Queens and the original, you know, Queens is this place that's known from the very beginning as a, in New York, as a place of religious tolerance. And that's a very unique idea. It's, I'm sorry, I hate saying very unique. I'll never say that. It is a unique <laughs> idea. In human <laughs> right. You can't, nothing can be very unique. Everybody should know that. But it's, that's, it's an interesting concept, which is that we, you know, we, that what you're saying is actually, there's a lot of parallels in, the, I love that, that phrase, the moral constitution and the idea that we are a nation that's kind of built on a kind of covenant. And, you know, the idea of a manifest destiny, that's a very religious concept. But at the same time, we have that enlightenment ideal that says, well, wait a second. I mean, like everybody has the right to believe whatever religion they want. Well, what, or I to be secular. Yeah, I, I, and I agree with that. I want to come back yeah. to Covenant in a second because I actually meant something a little bit different by it. But just okay. to, to pick up, to, but actually to pick up off of your point, what America sort of discovered uniquely among the nations of the West is like so many, America is not unique or, or even very unique among the nations of the West in sort of seeing its own story in like the biblical stories, right? It's not sure. the first notion. It's not the first nation to appropriate the story of the Exodus from Egypt or the story to appropriate, you know, the first nation to appropriate the story of like Queen Esther or whatever. But every single other nation that has done this has seen itself as being the true Israel, right? So like we're the true chosen nation. We've replaced the actual, you know, Israel. America, and I think precisely because of its rootedness in enlightenment ideals that both celebrate universal ideals and universal values, but also kind of glories in some of its more salubrious manifestations in particularity, right? In, 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 in difference, what we've been able to do is actually see chosenness not as something that means we have the truth and everybody else is in error, but rather we've been able as a nation, and at least at our best moments, not in our worst, but at our best moments, to see chosenness as something that doesn't confer upon us superiority, but that confers upon us responsibility. And we've done that. Lincoln probably did it best. Lincoln referred to the United, to the, to Americans as an almost chosen people, which mm. is such an important phrase because Lincoln was very careful throughout his career not to claim that America had sort of replaced, you know, ancient Israel as the chosen people. He saw us as not as the chosen people, but as a chosen people. We actually have a particular responsibility that maybe other nations don't have in the same way that we do. They have their own responsibilities that we don't necessarily share, but we have certain responsibilities to be a beacon for liberty, to fight against racism, and maybe particularly against racism against black people. Maybe we have actually a unique responsibility as a, as a nation because of our history to fight against that. But we have certain very un, uh, very special responsibilities as a consequence of our history. And you can understand that as chosenness, which kind of leads to the idea of covenant that I, I'm, I was articulating before, which is that America actually is not a co social contract. Like it's not like 
we are great from the beginning or we should have been great from the beginning. And therefore, if we if if we aren't great at any point subsequent, it makes a mockery or it undermines the entire founding. Right. That's how a contract works. And it's how a contract works like in normal interpersonal life. Right. Like if you and a neighbor agree, assign a contract to do us, you know, to provide certain services to each other. If at any point subsequent to that, if you kind of violate the terms of the contract, so then you've undermined the whole thing retroactively. Mm -hmm. What a covenant does is something very, very different and which I don't think we have a modern equivalent for, but you see it not just in the Bible, but in all, you know, the entire ancient Near East and in Mesopotamia. And that is what a covenant does is it'll, is it allows a people or a group of people to be accountable to either God or a king right. or an idea. In the American case, I think it's accountable to an idea, to an idea about liberty and universal human dignity. When I'm finished the thought, but then I have, I want to, I want to break because they, but what, a, but what's unique about a covenant is what a covenant presumes is that in the beginning you've, you've already failed. You're starting out as failures, right? Like Abraham and all his whole, they're all idol worshipers, his family. Right. And it actually to, to take the biblical example, it takes like a thousand years and like beside Kings, like Hezekiah and Josiah that no normal person has ever heard of to actually abolish idolatry, right? Because what a covenant does is it says, here's the idea that you're accountable for. Now you can spend the next, how, however long, you can spend the rest of your time on earth and your, all of your children's, you can spend all of this time trying to live up to the ideal. And the fact that you, the fact that you fall short of the ideal doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't undermine your righteousness and it doesn't mean that you're not chosen that's actually the substance and the stuff of chosenness, meaning the point of chosenness is to give a people a way to traverse that chasm from initial, original iniquity to righteousness mm -hmm. and salvation. That's what the American story is. Like, yes, we are, like the fact that we were founded in some ways on iniquity, right? Like the fact that so many people who signed the Declaration of Independence were slaveholders and the fact that the Constitution sort of gives slavery a foothold and or at least allows slavery to retain a foothold in certain parts of the country is not in any way contradictory to to American chosenness and righteousness and righteousness right. on the contrary and like trying to find a way to make it so that really those things weren't that bad or they were misunderstood or they were you should put them in historical context like all of that is unnecessary once you understand America as a covenant like no our nation is accountable to an idea to an aspiration towards liberty and universal human dignity and the fact that we are constantly making incremental progress towards it is not a sign that that really we were all hypocrites to begin with it's actually a sign of what it means to be a chosen people so anyway that's well i would add to that what you said and then i want to kind of like get back to the topic but <laughs> i would add to that that in the jewish religion there's an understanding that you know we we actually like it we we, we expect there to be debate because no one knows exactly what Hashem would want. So we debated and the learned rabbis are supposed to be, that's the basis of the Talmud. There's like Hillel and Shammai, right? It's like, they're, th this is the, this is a very American idea. It's also very, it's a very Jewish idea. It's a very American idea that nobody has some special wisdom as to like what the perfect union is looking like. That's what we try to accomplish through recent debate, even though we've strayed from that in our modern politics in a lot of ways. But that's the idea is that, you know, yeah, it's okay to have, you know, you, you kind of wanted to have a Jefferson and a Hamilton. You wanted to have, you know, a John Quincy Adams and an Andrew Jackson because 
even though, in my view, Andrew Jackson did a lot of terrible things, especially to Native Americans, and there's a lot of bad things about the Jackson presidency, he represented a strain of the American experience and populist point of view. And that, you know, that's how we grapple with it, you know, and that, and that, and this idea that we're constantly kind of pulling and tugging and pushing and pulling and everything like that and debating, and that ultimately that process will make us make things better. It's a very American view that we are kind of making a more perfect union. But I want to get back to this idea. Do you think, because it seems today, it's not just the woke. There's a lot of Americans. I mean, if you think about it, when we talked about those kind of born again evangelicals that emerge after the 60s, a lot of them were Trump voters and a lot of them were voting for Trump as this protest. They think that things have gotten so corrupted and the elites have become so out of touch that they, they, they wanted, they supported a wrecking ball who was not a righteous person. And so I don't know if that's necessarily a vote from despair, but it does sort of suggest that, you know, things are fraying right now that a lot of Americans maybe don't necessarily believe we're heading in the right, not just that the president's heading in the right direction or their policies are going in the right direction, but there's a sort of sickness in our soul as a country. There's a lot of people who really think that this is it, like, you know, we had our peak and now we're in decline. What do you say to that? And it can't, it, do you think it's just a matter of like, well, you know, you should, you should probably consider religion. You should probably consider faith, you know? Right. It's gotta be more than that, right? right. I mean, like, what, what, what do whether, you do? Whether the theological or entrepreneurial kind, yeah. No, it's a good question. And I, I actually wanna validate the impulse. Yeah. And again, to contrast Jerusalem and Athens, right? So Athens is represents a tradition, kind of a philosophical tradition that sees two statements that are opposite from each other as like totally incompatible, right? So like right. P and not P, totally incompatible with each other, right? Yeah. Q and not Q, totally incompatible. The, the biblical tradition, kind of Jerusalem's like moral tradition like gleefully stacks you know experientially inconsistent things one after the other like genesis 1 and genesis 2 tell like two totally different creation stories about the world and like no one's bothered by that right so right. i think what you can and by the same token in the very same you know moral tradition or, or tradition of literature you can have an Isaiah, right? Like a prophet who's looking at the future and saying like, oh my God, like the lion's going to lie down with the lamb and everything will be great. And, you know, the 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 old people will sit under their vine and fig tree again and the young people will get married again. And this right, is right. right. Everyone will be happy. In the very same tradition, you can have an Ecclesiastes that's kind of like, ugh, like, ah, uh -huh. like everything's bad and nothing's interesting and everything. And anything you like is like boring and meh. And I think there's nothing wrong with those two things coexisting together. As my mom always says, you can feel two feelings at the same time. Right. And I think it's important to validate the like widespread American sense that things have gone wrong and things have, things have become bad. But that said, I think it's, it's, it's really like a matter of capacity to recognize opportunities. So just to go back to kind of like, you know, let's say a certain type of, a certain type of evangelical Christian who's, you know, a MAGA voter and a Trump, like the kind of person who would have, who would have railed against Bill Clinton 
morally sullying the White House. Now a Trump voter, like it seems so inconsistent that you have to understand that as a protest vote, things are going wrong. There's the only way for me to be heard. As here's where I think you can kind of differentiate between different kind of American religious constituencies. I, as like a member of a Jewish community, kind of look at that sense of like, oh, things have gone so wrong. I need to protest against it as sort of like, hey, man, like <laughs> we've specialized in things have been going wrong for like 2000 years. Like, relax. <laughs> you, yeah, lost yeah. the, you lost the Senate. <laughs> like my my great grandparents, my great great grandparents lost like four, 13 out of 14 siblings. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. To the Nazis. <laughs> like, relax, man. It's so funny you say that. Like when when I see some of the very like online super hyper progressive like yeah. you know jewish twitter types and they're like this is the most anti-semitic i'm like i i really want to just like <laughs> sit them down and, and tell them a story of menachem big and and like <laughs> what he had to endure <laughs> you know what yeah. i mean like in a, it's in like a this is the most anti-semitic <laughs> soviet gulag he had to endure like you know what i'm saying yeah he he had to like sell he had to secretly celebrate observe the seder you know, with a, with, with, you know, with, with his cellmate you know, by hoarding <laughs> cups of coffee for the wine. It's like, give me a right. break. That's and right. When you hear someone like, this is the most anti-Semitic I've ever, thing I've ever seen in 2022. Like, here's the thing. It's not. But, <laughs> right? but right. what I would say is this is a story I've told on my podcast a couple of times, but, but I mentioned them earlier, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, you know, one of my teachers, a great man. And I remember he once asked me, and you can, I'm dating the story a little bit because the reference now would be like Twitter or Instagram or something. But he once asked me, what do you think of Facebook? And I remember not knowing what he was looking for. So I kind of pretend, bought myself some time and I was like, yeah. hmm, good question. What do you think of Facebook? And he's, I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, I believe that Facebook was created for the purpose of spreading great values. Now he used the word, you know, Torah, so specific, you know, particularly mm -hmm. Jewish values to the Jewish community, like teaching Jewish people. But in a broader sense, you look at his life and his, and his legacy. I believe Facebook was created for the purpose of spreading great values. Mm. Now, anyone with eyes in their head and a brain in their skull can tell by being on Facebook for under five seconds, that there are plenty of things that you can do with Facebook and with Twitter and with Instagram and with TikTok and with Snapchat and with YouTube that are not spreading great values. Right. 100. In fact, that's probably the majority of it. It's really a question of how do you look at opportunities? Now, if you have my, my both belief and hope would be that even though this isn't true across the board and it's not always true, but the more you educate yourself to think in long in long time horizons, the more you see yourself, not just at, not just as an end in and of itself, which we all are, but you actually see yourself as one link in a chain that stretches back from your great, 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 great grandparents to your great, 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 great grandchildren. The more you see yourself as, as a link in a chain, yeah. the more you're able to see world historic opportunities like social media for what they are, which is an unparalleled way for us to spread goodness across the four court, you know, across the, across the world. And it's not always going to be those things. And maybe it's not mostly going to be those things, but it's really a question of how you look at the world. Like there's so, if you so want you to see, you see the you technology will. is neutral. And as you, I love that expression. You're saying like, listen, the people who are having a lot of big families are largely people of faith are the hardware and the software is being invented by the entrepreneurs. And 
we should look at these as neutral. We don't have to look at them at the as a sort of the end of the world. And you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that view. But on the other hand, we have some some data. It's not working. People are miserable. They live their lives online. They are, you know, like they in many ways, I mean, yeah, it's like they're this is a simulacrum. This is a another world and it becomes, it sort of takes on more meaning for them and they can be cut down so easily. And it feels like the whole world is coming down on them. And it has this horrible effect. It makes people miserable. That's not the fault. I agree with you. It's not the fault necessarily of the technology. It's the fault of how we use it. But I don't know if I, if I share Rabbi Sachs's optimism. Well, I think it, what it should push us more to do is, is analyze the technology less and analyze the pre-existing human dynamics that it allows us to, or, or compels us or influences us to exploit more, right? So ah. just to take, to take like an uncontroversial example, or, you know, maybe a, an example that people don't think about too much, but that I think is like relatively uncontroversial to historians. Like without the printing press, the Protestant Reformation never happens. Without the, like Martin Luther is the first like print native, like you have digital natives now, like Martin Luther is the first print native. The reason the Reformation exists is because print allows his message to spread across Europe. The Reformation never happens without the printing press. Without the Reformation, you don't have the wars of religion. Without the wars of religion, you don't have like just untold numbers of deaths across right. Europe. None of us would want to like rewind the clock to like go back to like papyrus codexes, right? But or codices. But I think what, what that analysis instead should tell us is that there were like very serious, deep systemic problems mm. in European society that the printing press exposed. And the question is, what do you do about them? Right? So what we see, for example, in the context of social media is what social media does is it gives us the worst of both urban living and rural living, right? Or like big, big city living and small town living, right? Because in a, in a, in a small town, right? So like what people hate about social media is dunking culture. Like it allows you to dunk on people and that's really bad. And it's super toxic. Oh, I like it. I try never. I like, I like the dunking right. part. Well, I, right, I don't exactly. like getting dunked upon. Right. Well, everyone wants to be Shaq, right? right. So, <laughs> and by the way, it's so indicative of our culture that the dominant metaphor for interpersonal interaction on social media is taken from the world of sports, right? Like, and those disrespectful part of sports, but I think there, yeah. You know, like in, if you grew up in a small town in like the thirties, right? Right. So, Everybody knew each other. Every, right. And your reputation could be ruined with an, like an, in, in a second. Whisper. Yeah, Everyone yeah, yeah. was policing you. Wow, right. That's so smart, Ari. The, <laughs> every now and then I hit on one. But the difference is that in a small town, what differentiated the small town policing of everybody was that everybody knew every little thing about you, but they also loved you and cared about you. Like you were part of a tight and thick, no. tight knit and thick community. Not, so you, not, 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 not if you were gay. Well, what I, but I'm so, so again, like I'm just talking about the larger. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I, 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 right. I, I, I take your point. Now in the big yeah. city, you had all of the advantages of scale, right? You had all the anonymity. Nobody knew who you were. Nobody cared about you. Nobody was policing you, but you, for the most part, did not have that tight knit community. You didn't have people who loved you and cared about you and would be there for you at the drop of a hat if anything right. was wrong. Right. So what we've, what social media has allowed us to do is take the worst parts of mm -hmm. small town living and the worst parts of big city living, namely the snitch, the snitching culture and, and like the capacity to root, to ruin people's reputations and the capacity and the willingness to ruin people's reputation for moral transgressions and the nobody caring about you at the end of the day and smush them together to use a technical term. 
and we've removed any of the positive byproducts of those things. So we've removed the tight-knit people caring about you in the small towns, and we've removed the anonymity of the big cities. So all that should tell us, and not all that should tell us, but I think the dominant conclusion we should draw from that is that social media has social, social media has taught us in many ways about the deep importance of cultivating bonds of commonality and love and mutual care and respect mm -hmm. amongst Americans. And the fact that we've mostly like dispensed with any language, whether it's religious or civic or otherwise, for things that bind us together. And you could argue in some cases, like whether it's with LGBTQ people or with racial minorities, maybe for some communities, like there never was that those ties that bound in the first place. But the fact that we don't have those ties that bind is, I think, the salient conclusion to draw from social media, not Facebook is bad and we should dismantle it, but rather like we have a lot of work to do as a group of humans trying to work on a really aspirational and important project. That's a really, that's a very good thought. I will just say this. My big idea now, I think, is that we need a new kind of social media influencer who only shares their misery so that you will feel good about looking at their feed. <laughs> and, and the more celebrity you are, the better. So if we can just have, you know, a new ethos that if you really want to try to save the mental health of the next generation, then, you know, you should post about your root canal and how painful it was. You should post about how disappointing your workout was. You should post about how lonely you feel. You should post about your sleeplessness. You should post about, you know, all of your many foibles and how difficult and unhappy you are. And then that might give a little bit of joy and a little bit of, of, of comfort to, you know, the millions of people who are following your account. I love that. And the only thing I, I the only thing I'd add to it is I love the idea of like, <laughs> you know, like with all the Instagram influencers, it's like, exactly. Just do the opposite all, of what everyone's doing now. It's just like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm on this vacation. I'm in Ames, Iowa. It's incredibly hot. The days in is terrible. It's dirty. <laughs> I'm so incredibly bored. I wish I was home, but I have to stay. Phenomenal. Do that. <laughs> I, I just love the idea that like, what are the brand sponsorships look like for like the misery influencer? It's like, yeah. I'm so depressed. My, my, my partner just broke up with me. I'm eating like five tubs of ice cream and my tears and misery and waking are brought to you by Chanel, right? Like <laughs> it's brought to you by Ben and Jerry's, <laughs> right? What do we be by? Right. Those guys <laughs> brought to you by Uber eats by two. You by can't like, leave the home. You're so miserable and you or, keep ordering food that you shouldn't be eating. <laughs> ben, and, ben and Jerry's, or as I call them, the yeah. real life Gil Faison and George St. Geeglin, like, like weirdo. Ari, what a treat. This was so much fun. I could go on for hours. I want to thank you for coming on the re-education. As always, I learned a lot. It was a really challenging conversation. It's a it's a it's a new kind of topic. And we're gonna have you back. We're we're gonna have you back. I think we should do a kind of semi-regular thing on the re-education where we get into some of these, you know, issues of scripture and we can talk about early Christianity, which you have a PhD in, That's as right. well as not just not just Judaism, even though. I'm a PhD, right, so, PhD in ancient Christianity by appointments only. Right. By appointment. Exactly. <laughs> it's on the Patreon. But I'm serious. Like, I think it's an interesting topic and I, I hope my listeners like it. It's a little different than what we've been doing. We're doing, you know, we, we, we got it all here. Foreign policy, pop culture, religion, you name it. So on the re-education. Ari, thank you so much. This was so great. We'll have you on, on again soon. This is an unbelievable privilege. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. 
This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast, And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.